Welcome to the third episode of the Agora podcast, where we analyze political and economic developments in Greece, but also things happening around us that are relevant to the country. It's the latter that we'll be focusing on in this show. Normally, we would begin with our producer, Phoebe Fronista, who would be out and about discussing this week's topic. This time, though, we have something slightly different. Yeah, meine Damen und Herren, ich ich freue mich, dass ich nicht nur heute eine Videokonferenz mit dem französischen Staatspräsidenten Emmanuel Macron hatte. Nous avons eu l'occasion aujourd'hui et ces dernières semaines d'avoir de nombreux échanges et discussions pour approfondir nos positions communes et bâtir cet accord franco-allemand dans un contexte inédit qu'Angela Merkel vient de rappeler. So there you have it. Phoebe was bumped by German Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Emmanuel Macron. That's the way it goes, I guess. The reason our producer was so unceremoniously usurped is that this week we're focusing on the economic damage the coronavirus is wreaking in Europe and what the European Union is doing by way of policy response. We heard Merkel and Macron discussing their proposal for a 500 billion euro recovery fund to help European economies stand on their feet again after the blows from COVID-19. The European Commission has built on this idea and presented its own plan in what is likely to be the centerpiece of the response from Brussels. Later in the show, we'll hear a clip from European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen making the announcement. We'll also be speaking to Greek economist and academic George Pagulatos to assess what this proposal means for Europe and Greece in particular. But first, we're going to speak to John Springford and Christian Odendal from the Center for European Reform. John's a deputy director and Christian is the think tank's chief economist. Together, they published a paper recently examining why the economic impact of the pandemic is likely to be very uneven across Europe and why it could lead to larger imbalances for countries like Greece. It's called Three Ways COVID-19 Will Cause Economic Divergence in Europe. And I spoke to the two authors about what they found during their research and to what extent the recovery fund could help, if, of course, it moves ahead. Christian and John, the paper you co-authored suggests that the economic shock from COVID-19 will not be symmetric across Europe. You also point out that some governments are in a better position than others to cushion this economic impact. There are three factors driving divergence, you point out. The length and perhaps intensity of the lockdowns, the structure of each country's economy, and the fiscal wiggle room permitted by the state of public finances, particularly debt levels in each member state. We'd like you to walk us through each of these elements. So let's start with the lockdowns. You suggest that around 3% of GDP is lost for each month of lockdown. What factors did you look at and which countries are likely to be most impacted? So the 3% of GDP per month of lockdown figure uh, actually comes from a French estimate. Um, uh, the Banque de France uh, put together an estimate based upon some survey data 
Um, and they found that about, you know, uh, when the lockdown was happening, you saw about a 36% fall in activity. Um, and that translates into a fall in annual GDP per month of about 3% of GDP. Um, what, what we wanted to work out was uh, if you've had a really big infection, a uh, big, big outbreak, how long is it going to take you to get down to um, a level where you've kind of contained the virus? Um, and our view about that was, OK, let's look at South Korea, because they've managed, they haven't had a full lockdown. They've managed to uh, use a test contact trace and isolate regime to really contain the virus. Um, and so we thought, OK, let's try and extrapolate from um, some of the data and how fast declines have been since the peak um, in countries with, with big outbreaks uh, to work out how long it will take. And we can go into the method if you like, um, but perhaps I'll just say what we found, which is that, um, you know, for Germany, we're looking at mid-June, um, while for those countries with the really big outbreaks, France, Spain, Italy, the UK and Belgium, then we're looking at the end of July to mid-August. Um, and as you're looking at a 3% hit to GDP for every month, e you know, even if the lockdown is only a month or six weeks longer, um, then you're looking at a much bigger recession in those countries that have had really big outbreaks. And John, just to pick up on that, what are your projections with regards to the rest of the year? Obviously, what, one of the big fears is the virus making a comeback in the autumn. I mean, one thing that you you know you could do, and it, it seems as though some countries are, uh, are doing this, is that you know you you ease, you take the risk, and you don't try and suppress the virus completely, but you open up and you ease some lockdown measures, and you try to prioritise the economy in that way. And um, there's so much that we don't know about the virus. We don't know whether infections fall in the summer, um, as they do with the flu, for example. Um, you know, we don't know whether easing lockdowns will actually drive that much difference in people's behaviour. Um, particularly if you've got a lot of COVID around, then a lot of people are going to be a bit unwilling to just go about their daily lives um, as normal. Um, but certainly, you know, if you uh, open up um, while there are a lot of infectious people in your society, um, we haven't got to a point where you could say, oh, well, we've got um, a fair amount of herd immunity now because so many of our population have been infected. So you're, you certainly are risking a second wave. Um, and, you know, the only way that you can really recover economically, I think, is if people have real confidence that they're not going to catch the virus um, and are therefore able to go out and about and do their daily business uh, as they would have done before the pandemic struck. Does that mean that that point only comes when there's a, a vaccine around or does it come when there are more effective methods for treating people who are ill or could we possibly be looking at something like the, the Swedish model where they've tried to keep the economy going at perhaps a higher level than other countries? Well, there are several ways to contain the virus. Obviously, a, a successful vaccine that was rapidly administered across the population would be the best way and would allow us just to go back to normal, I think. Um, 
the other ones that you allude to are um, are possible. So you could do a, a, a test and contact trace regime like South Korea has. Um, that still requires social distancing, which will have harmful effects on the economy. Um, but it allows the authorities to know pretty well who's got the virus, to isolate them, um, and therefore allow other people to to um, get on with their lives. Um, uh, if if treatments improve um, so that the death rate falls, um, then that obviously would mean that uh, you could ease off the lockdown a bit. But you are still looking at potentially, you know, um, people having to have stays in hospital, even if they're treated. So that that would be less effective. Um, and with with Sweden, you know, we, we've seen that um, its mortality rate per capita is now the largest in Europe, I think. Um, they've gone for the strategy that they've gone for because they think that if they can infect as many people as possible while keeping the death rate as low as possible, um, then they're less likely to suffer a second wave and therefore fewer infections over the entire course of the pandemic. Um, it's obviously a gamble because one of these other types of intervention um, that I just discussed may be successful. Um, but that's that's what Sweden is going for. Okay, John, thanks very much. Let's move on to the second part of the paper. Uh, you suggest countries in Southern Europe are likely to suffer larger and more long-lasting recessions than those in the North and East. Why is this the case? And does Greece fall into this category, even though it contained the virus relatively successfully? So the IFO Institute in Munich uh, put together uh, some plausible assumptions about the levels of activity that we're seeing in lockdown in different sectors. And by sectors, I mean, you know, paper manufacturing, hotels, uh, retail of cars, business services, and so forth. Um, so they went down into quite a lot of detail. Um, we then applied those assumptions about how much activity there is going on um, to the level of employment in different regions. So obviously, some regions have loads more tourism, some have loads more manufacturing. Um, and so you can you can then make some you know some reasonable uh, assumptions about how different regions within Europe are going to be affected by lockdown. Um, and to cut a long story short, um, you know, in essence, non-food retail, cinemas, tourism, much of manufacturing is hit hardest uh, simply because. Uh, it's quite difficult to do those things without having face-to-face -face engagement, either between employees, uh, between workers, or between workers and their customers. Um, whereas somewhere, you know, with business services, then obviously it's much easier to work from home because you can just work on your computer. Um, and if we apply those those sectoral impacts to different regions, then we find that the disproportionate number of the hardest-hit regions in Europe are in southern Europe. Um, and that's largely because of tourism, um, but it's also because there are some very important manufacturing regions where a lot of manufacturing is concentrated, like Lombardy and uh, Veneto uh, in in Italy. Um, so that's that's kind of the reason why we think um, the structure of the economy economy matters. Um, and in terms of Greece, it's interesting because um, when we ranked all of the regions in Europe, then um, Greece had some of the hardest hit regions, be largely because of tourism. And the worst hit region was the southern Aegean islands. Um, so, you know, you're looking at you're looking at something which is potentially pretty bad for Greece, particularly as 
you know, a decent amount of uh, Greece's GDP comes from from tourism. The data, you know, different different organisations have different numbers for this, but somewhere between ten and fifteen percent of GDP. Our last podcast uh, was about. Uh, tourism and, and uh, the impact that this will have on what is the key industry for Greece. And of course, the irony here is that during the recent uh, debt crisis that Greece uh, went through, tourism was one of the few bright spots and actually uh, was doing rather well in uh, recent years. Whereas in this crisis, which is actually a much broader one, not a Greece-specific uh, one, if you, if, if you like, tourism there isn't, isn't there to bail Greece out. No, I think that's right. And I, the other issue is, of course, that um, even if we manage to end lockdowns or ease them significantly, um, it's not the case that tourism is just going to come come flooding back. Um, you're still going to have to have social distancing. Um, going to bars and restaurants is potentially one of the more risky activities uh, that one can do. Um, and it's it would also require you to go on a plane um and a lot of people are, even if you know i know i know that greece is coming up with plans to try and reopen the tourism sector this summer um it may be difficult to actually encourage tourists to go um so i think even if we manage to get even it, it, despite the fact that um greece has been remarkably successful at controlling the virus um that it still might find it difficult, uh, even if it eases lockdown measures um, significantly and gets the tourism sector open again, to actually attract people to come to it. Christian, you wanted to add something on this uh, topic. Yeah, I think there is a more um, a more general point here that um, the economic impact does not only depend on your own success as a country to suppress the virus, but also on those that you depend on for your economic activity. For example, the German um, manufacturing in part had to close down because their supply chains outside of Germany were broken. And so and for Greek tourism, it's the other way around. Um, even if Greece contains the virus really successfully, uh, if those countries where Greek where tourism comes from, uh, such as the UK, for example, uh, struggle with containing the virus, that will have a severe impact on on on, on the Greek tourism sector. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and actually, it's a good um, uh, move into our uh, next question because, of course, the the projections are for the, the revenues from tourism to be below half what they were last year and immediately that's triggering questions about what the Greek government can do to support struggling uh, businesses. And the final point you guys make in the paper is that Southern European governments also find themselves in a weak position because of legacy issues, namely high debt levels. I'd like to get an idea from you how much of a restriction you think this will be in their response to the economic impact of COVID-19. So um, one argument to make here is that high debt levels may prevent governments from taking very bold action to support the economy during the lockdown. I, I think this is in part driven by the fact that um, Germany has spent so much, right? And it was uh, seen as the as a country that was more, you know, focused on austerity. Um, and so there was a, not, not just a surprise about how much Germany is doing, but also a bit of worry that, you know, Germany because of its strong fiscal and economic position, can support its own economy a lot more than other countries can support theirs. And so this could be a driver of divergence. 
Um, we looked at various measures of economic support from governments, and we did not find that much of a strong relationship at the moment between public debt level and economic support. But that doesn't mean that, that this needs necessarily holds into the future because we are now coming into a, a uh, sort of a, the, the, the easing of the lockdowns. We're coming into the territory of, of, of stimulus programs and so forth. So Germany still has a lot of room to spend, whereas other countries might increasingly struggle. Um, and the second point, of course, is that countries start with different debt levels uh, might struggle in the future when having to service that debt. So usually we think an increasing debt level means higher interest rates. Now, if Germany starts at 60 and adds 20% and ends up at 80% of GDP uh, as debt levels, probably that won't do that much to the German interest rate because whether Germany has 60 or 80% doesn't make German debt any, any riskier. Um, whereas if you're Italy and you have 135% of GDP, uh, which was already sort of uh, at, 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 at the risk of becoming unsustainable, and then you add another 20% on top of that, then your interest rates are probably going to be quite a bit higher. So there will be another increasing divergence in interest rates in Europe, and that could potentially drive um, further economic divergence in the future. And speaking of economic divergence, which after all is uh, the main subject of the paper, if the assumptions you make are accurate, what could further economic divergence within Europe mean for a country like Greece? So the, the, the problem with, with economic divergence is in, is in part economic and in part political, right? Economic, um, it is that, that um, for example, a currency level and interest rate level that is sufficient and appropriate for Germany and France may no longer be so appropriate for Italy or Greece at all, right? So there is a limit to what sort of economic divergence we can we can have economically in the eurozone and the second is political right the european union and also the euro was supposed to be a convergence machine right to bringing economies closer together um in eastern central and eastern europe the promise of german wages uh was one of those that made uh, the, the european union appeal to people there so if we uh if 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 the euro and the european union no longer lead to economic convergence then people might question the value of, of, of European integration. And that would be a, a hard blow to the European Union. And that's certainly something we've seen in the discussion, uh, particularly in the, in, in the last few weeks, the objections from the Dutch and certain other countries and how that, much, how that riled uh, reactions in uh, Italy and Spain. John, you wanted to add something to this. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just wanted to add uh, a point about um, divergence and debt, I guess. Um, so w one of the reasons why um, Southern Europe is in a is in a difficult position is because um, what they've really needed is is faster nominal growth in order to be able to get debt levels down, and and many countries have you know have needed that since before the uh, global financial crisis. Um, it's it's difficult to achieve those levels of nominal growth um, when you have a big debt overhang, uh, particularly in the private sector, um, and so there is there is potentially a risk that with a lot of uh, businesses having taken admittedly um, uh, pretty uh, risk free uh, borrowing from their governments. Um, 
but even so, they have to pay it back that um, they're going to uh, end up transferring more of their revenues essentially into debt service, which might have an impact on investment. Um, the other issue is that um, when you have um, you know, Germany and the Netherlands uh, running quite large current account surpluses, um, then it can be it can be quite difficult for you know countries such as Greece or or Italy to then uh, do what they hoped that they might be able to do after the two thousand and eight crisis, which is to see a big jump in exports, um, which would help them to achieve faster nominal growth. Um, and uh, so I, my concern, I guess, is that you end up with a kind of divergence machine where countries have high debt, some sort of recession or shock comes along, their debt jumps further, um, and without some way of raising the level of nominal growth in those countries that you just uh, end up with more and more problems uh, for both the public and the private sectors. And of course, this is why over the last couple of months, you know, the cry coming from the South has been for greater understanding, greater solidarity and for grants rather than loans, which brings us to the idea of the recovery fund and this proposal that's been put forward by Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron for the 500 billion euro fund as a response to the economic damage done by the coronavirus. Um how significant is what they're proposing and the fact that it's based on grants and not loans? And do you think it's a robust enough response, one that will prevent the potential divergence in Europe that your paper warns about? So the proposal that Macron and Merkel have made is that uh, there will be 500 billion which will be borrowed by the EU collectively the member states will be liable to pay that back um, according to a similar set of principles as the EU budget, so um, richer member states pay more. Um, they hope that, and that's about, 500 billion is about 3% of EU G- GDP. They want to spend that in a couple of years. Um, and it's, um, sorry, they want to spend that in a couple of years. of GDP is not huge, um, but it's a good start. The problem is that we don't know to what extent that 500 billion will be transferred from, you know, the rich northwest of the EU to countries that are really struggling in southern Europe. There's going to be a big negotiation uh, over that. But if we think that you know a decent amount of that, say two percent of that money, is comes in transfers, then it can certainly help because you know for recession we're looking at somewhere between you know six and ten percent uh, fall in activity this year, perhaps. Um, then getting an extra one to two percent of GDP of extra spending in the recovery it will certainly certainly help. The the other thing that it that it will do is it will signal to investors that France and Germany um, are going to stand behind the system. Um, after the euro crisis, as you know, that was not necessarily made clear to investors and it took the ECB uh, uh, with whatever, whatever it takes message to really do that. So I think that I think that those two things mean that it will help. It's not a panacea. It's not going to, you know, get rid of the problems that we've identified so far, but it will certainly help. John, just as a small parenthesis before Christian comes in, you, you mentioned there a, a, 
a word that's uh, for some people, particularly in Northern Europe, is a very dirty one, transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do, if, if they go ahead with the recovery fund, how do politicians in Northern Europe uh, present this so it doesn't seem like fiscal transfers? And, and do, you, do you envisage there being a problem there in how they sell it to domestic audiences? Hmm. The uh, Franco-German proposal kind of makes clear what their strategy is going to be. Um, and the idea is that um, this is a one-off. Um, it's solidarity in a once-in-a-century pandemic. Um, it's the EU as a whole standing together. Um, it's not just, you know, Germany saving the day. Um and that there will be, there should be some kind of side deals which will which will help. Um, you know, there's going to be uh, more effort uh, when it comes to technological development, for example, which would help some of the Scandinavians who have, you know, some of the the best uh, science and technology in the EU. Um, so, I don't think they can tell their voters that this is not going to be transfers because it is. Um, but I think that they can sell it in a way by saying that it's a one-off, that it's time limited, um, that this is an emergency and that we must show solidarity um, in a way which I think um, a lot of voters actually would be willing to accept. And, you know, Christian perhaps could tell us that it's been remarkable how the um, CDU, which has been allergic to the idea of transfers in Germany, um, has been largely supportive of Angela Merkel so far. Christian, uh, is can this be presented as a win-win situation, and more importantly, perhaps can it actually turn out to be a win-win situation? Yeah, so it is being presented as transfers and help and solidarity in Germany by the uh, by the conservatives and, and the social democrats in government, and that's quite remarkable. It's a, quite a significant shift, um, particularly on Merkel's part. Um, so. The, the fear in Germany and I guess in the Netherlands and Austria as well was always we don't want the Eurozone to become a transfer or debt union. And the way this is, um, um, this is addressed is by saying this is a temporary measure. Um, it is clearly time limited and it is in a very severe external crisis. So they are trying to make sure that this is temporary, which is why, you know, you need to be a bit hesitant when calling this a Hamiltonian moment because um, this is not a permanent shift. This is, you know, a, we, we know now that the Eurozone or the European Union in a catastrophic scenario will stick together and have some form of fiscal insurance. And I think that's important. That's an important signal um, to the outside and, and also within Europe that in, in, a, in, in case of a catastrophe, there is fiscal solidarity. So in that sense, um, there is a Hamiltonian opportunity in this uh, that uh, that the euro improves and the euro and the European Union improves with. Um, whether it will be enough, um, that's a bit hard to tell at the moment because we're still in the midst of this crisis. So we have basically this package um, where you know the parameters of the redistributional element are yet to be determined. If it if it entails sizable transfers, as John said, then this is this is significant, and it can be combined with the the, the previously announced program for, you know, the short program by the European Commission on unemployment and, and furlough schemes, um, the ESM program for health-related expenditure, the EIB program. So, you know, all of that combined 
can be a significant help for Southern Europe. Well, as uh, my colleague Yanis uh, Muzakis point, uh, pointed out, even Wolfgang Schäuble has accepted uh, the proposal. So uh, we really are in uh, new territory for Europe, the European Union and the Eurozone especially. Um, Christian, John, I want to thank you both very much. You've really enlightened us and added to uh, your uh, excellent paper. And there's obviously a lot of things uh, still to be seen, how they pan out, as Christian mentioned there. I'm sure in months to come, we'll be able to return to uh, this subject and uh, see how uh, Europe is uh, adapting to what is a very uh, different uh, reality. But thank you very much for your insight. Thank you for having us. And uh, just to let listeners know that uh, the Centre for European Reform paper that uh, was written, authored by uh, Christian and John, Three Ways COVID-19 Will Cause Economic Divergence in Europe, uh, we'll have a link up uh, on the site so you can click on there and read it. Before we go to the break, here's a clip of the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen presenting her proposal for the Recovery Fund which we discussed with John and Christian just now. We'll return to this subject in the second half of the show with my next guest, George Pagulatos, who's an expert on European issues and the Greek economy. And for me, the choice is simple. I want us to take a new, bold step together. Europe is in a unique position to be able to invest in a collective recovery and a common future. In our union, people, business and companies depend and rely on each other. In our union, cohesion, convergence and investment are good for all. And in our union, we know that the boldest measures truly are the safest for the future. And this is why the Commission is today proposing a new recovery instrument called Next Generation EU, worth 750 billion euro. You're listening to the Agora Podcast by Macropolis. You can find us on Acast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts for the time being. We'll soon be available in more places. In the meantime, please do subscribe, rate us, and send us your comments. You can also visit our website, www.macropolis.gr, for more information about our work. That's Macropolis with a C. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the second half of the Agora podcast. We're sticking with the theme we started on, which is the European Union's response to the economic impact of the coronavirus. What I'd like to do now is to approach the subject from a Greek angle, examining what the decisions taken so far at an EU level mean for perhaps the bloc's most fragile economy. To do that, I'm joined by George Pagulatos, a professor of European politics and economy at the Athens University of Economics and Business and the College of Europe. George is also the Director General of the Eliamep Think Tank in Athens and is just the person to provide perspective on what decisions that what the decisions that have been taken 
and are likely to be taken in Brussels and other European capitals will mean for Greece. George, I know you're a man in demand, so thanks very much for taking the time to join us. Hello, Nick. Thank you for having me. In the first half of the show, George, we heard from John Springford and Christian Odendal from the Centre for European Reform about the possibility of greater economic divergence within the EU as a result of COVID-19. Are you concerned that there's a danger countries like Greece will find themselves further adrift once this crisis has settled down? I am concerned about vulnerability entering a kind of self-feeding path in the Eurozone South. Um, These are economies that lack the fiscal space um, because of the large public debt levels that uh, the the crisis has left uh, behind. Um, Even though their fiscal targets are more ambitious than those of northern Eurozone counterparts, um, they've lost a lot in terms of human capital and, uh, and investment, uh, and this has clearly is clearly affecting their growth potential. And they are being economies in the south are being more heavily affected by this crisis, uh, given its impact on tourism and sectors that are directly or indirectly affected by tourism in the south of Europe. Uh, so my concern is with the unemployment rates bound to uh, hit again 20% levels or above. In Greece, uh, as in Spain, uh, and of course to rise very significantly in other Southern European countries, um, that the, the day after might um, uh, might force a kind of adjustment that uh, could enter, could catapult the Southern economies into another self-feeding recessionary cycle, um, triggered by fiscal austerity, uh, leading to low growth rates, disinvestment, a high tax burden upon the private sector, um, at the end of the day, fiscal slippage and so forth. That's my major concern. Uh, and that's why I believe that all initiatives that are being taken at the European level towards a greater degree of risk sharing and towards a greater reliance on fiscal instruments and not just the monetary channel that has been uh, quite successfully Um, used, mobilized by the European Central Bank, are not only on the right direction, but they're also crucial in averting this um, uh, slide towards self-feeding vulnerability in the South. Okay, let's take a second to to look at, you know, these measures, the sort of the, the European Union trying to cut off at the past the worst effects of this crisis and particularly in terms of uh, the southern European countries you mentioned, which had already been burdened by previous crises. The EU has so far deployed several financial tools to mitigate the economic impact of COVID-19. If we can, let's look at two of them, uh, which are of particular interest to Greece. Firstly, the decision to include Greece in the ECB's special bond buying program, PEPP or PEP, whichever way you want to call it. Give us your perspective on how significant a decision that was. Well, this was very significant for Greece. Greece um, uh, was outside the QE um, and um, uh, Greek bonds have been accepted as collateral since uh, last April uh, after the the breakup of the pandemic. And um, uh, even though the the participation so far of uh, Greek bonds in the program is not very significant, uh, the, uh, the ECB can still buy up to 16 billion 
of Greek bonds, which, by the way, exceeds the financing needs of, of Greece uh, this year, um, the impact on the positive impact on uh, lowering yields has been quite, quite significant, I'd say even spectacular. Um, yields on the 10-year bond have, have uh, declined from 4% uh, area levels down to around 2%, uh, and uh, they're bound to decline even further. So this, this is an important um, impact. It lowers financing costs for the entire economy, um, both uh, public sector and private sector. Um, Greece, of course, is uh, to a very significant extent outside the market in, in so far as a large part of its public debt is concerned, uh, being held by the official sector. But, uh, of course, there is an important uh, impact of all these decisions in the lowering, lower financing costs for the, for the whole economy. And this has been quite beneficial uh, when it comes to the ECB program. Okay, so you outlined really well there the, the tangible effects of that decision. Is there also something in the symbolism of bringing Greece back within the fold, as it were? Obviously, as you hinted there, Greece had been excluded from uh, the ECB's QE programs for many years. And in the dark days of the crisis, when perhaps they were really needed, Greece really needed liquidity, the, the country perhaps within the Eurozone that needed it most, it was excluded. So is there uh, also an importance in the symbolism of bringing Greece back in at such a crucial time? Yeah, absolutely, Nick. I mean, it's, a, uh, it, it's an important kind of headline effect that uh, Greece uh, has been included in this program. It, uh, it raises the credibility of the economic efforts of the Greek government, uh, its uh, effort to uh, to access the markets, even for small issues, and uh, and it uh, smoothens the financing costs for the, for the entire economy. I mean, uh, the Greek crisis has evolved both in real and symbolic terms, serving as milestones, both for the good and for the bad. And this is clearly a milestone. The inclusion of Greece in the ECB's programs is is a milestone um, that. Um, um, sends the message that the Greek economy is back to some sense of normality to the extent that we can call the current situation normal, of course. At least it's back to the, the Eurozone normality of treating um, this crisis through the extraordinary means that have been deployed in order to effectively confront it. Okay. Speaking of symbolism, there is a flip side to it. And here I'm thinking particularly of the other main uh, tool that uh, the Eurozone has put together to combat the effects of uh, COVID-19, the economic impact, which is the uh, European Stability Mechanism or ESM uh, credit line. About 4 billion euros is available to Greece, uh, money also available to other countries, but through a credit line. But we, we see a real reluctance of uh, Eurozone member states to take up the funds available, even though it's a very low interest and doesn't come with the conditionality of the kind of the bailouts that Greece was used to in the past. But here it's the symbolism of going back to, to the ESM, taking out a credit line and having even some kind of oversight that seems to be putting the Greek authorities off. You're right in, in pointing out this issue, and this has been the concern not just of uh, of, of Greece, of the Greek government, but also of other governments, uh, most notably the Italian one. 
um, it has been made clear that the conditionality will be very light. And it also seems that there are at least two countries that are ready to access DSM, Cyprus and Spain. Uh, so the headline effect, the negative headline effect on Greece would be very limited if it is within this group of countries. I mean, there's, this is a kind of access to finance that no country wants to be the first in line um, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to use. And if this is, can, be, can be averted, there are only benefits in being able to, uh, to borrow with interest rates in the area of 0%, much lower than the current market rates, uh, even uh, um, those that, despite the decrease that we have seen over the last uh, few weeks. So do you think that if uh, other countries, as you, you mentioned there, Cyprus and Spain, go first, then Greece this time around, unlike in 2010, isn't the canary that goes down the mine shaft? Do you think that at some point uh, for the Greek government, it will make sense that, that look, there's this money sitting there uh, that we, we can put to good use it's at a very low uh, interest rate, virtually nil, as you, you mentioned. Uh, others have gone, we should go as well. Do you think that that will be the thought process? Yes, I, I think that the rational case that anyone can make uh, around this uh, trumps any kind of uh, concerns about the symbolic impact. And then, by the way, everyone understands that this is a crisis that is exogenous. Uh, financing costs are very important. Anyone can see where the financing costs are. No one will be blaming Greece for resorting to DSM as a result of failure. It's just a matter of finding, accessing the cheaper finance uh, if it is available. And the conditionality is uh, one that would not pose problems. So I, I, I really do not see the case for any concern or any skepticism against that. And as long as we have other countries going along as well, I think that it would be the best thing to do. And I expect the Greek government to do it. Okay, for the time being, it's viewed, viewed as a poison chalice. But obviously, as you mentioned, that over time, that um, position, that viewpoint may change. At the moment, though, there is much more interest in the so-called recovery fund and the, the Franco-German proposal, which the European Commission is uh, building on this week for uh, a 500 billion euro fund to be put together uh, and for it to be in the form of uh, transfers or grants rather than loans. How much hope can a country like Greece take from that uh, proposal and from how the situation is likely to involve, how the discussion around this recovery fund is likely to evolve? Or do you think that uh, we are going to see the north-south split cement over this proposal and that's what's going to define the Eurozone for the years to come? Well, first of all, this is one case where symbolics matter. It's, uh, it's very important that the European Union is launching this recovery fund, a, a common bond of a size which is not insignificant at all, 500 billion. That uh, is a, about its equivalent to about 1% of GDP every year um, of the EU GDP. That's not insignificant. And uh, of course, it's, um, it's a step towards uh, further 
um, integration through the fiscal channel at a time when the monetary channel has been uh, hitting the wall of the decisions of the German Constitutional Court and political tolerance. So it's important that we have that. It creates an important precedent. It does not amount to a eurobond. Uh, it, it is not uh, exactly Europe's Hamilton moment, but it is certainly a big leap towards closer integration and it creates a precedent uh, that is very important uh, to build upon in the future. Now, when it comes to Greece, um, there is significant practical value in that as well. Uh, what uh, is expected uh, by the government, uh, my understanding is that um, amounts to about 8 to 10 billion of uh, grants would be granted to the Greek uh, economy, um, proportionate to the degree of decline that the Greek economy is expected to suffer, uh, incidentally, the highest expected in uh, the European Union, also given the high uh, dependence on tourism. So That's right. The, the European Commission estimated a 9.7% contraction this year. Exactly. The estimates of the, of the governor of the Greek Central Bank are, um, are more moderate, slightly more optimistic, but in any case, it's going to be a severe shock for the Greek economy. Uh, 8 to 10 billion for the next three years is about 1.5 to 2% of GDP for each year, for the next three years. So that's important. That's, that's significant. And it's not going to add to the Greek public debt, which will um, be in the 200% area when this uh, crisis is over. Uh, mind you that in our case, it is not the, uh, the stock that matters, but the flows. It is not the headline figure, but the financing costs of this debt. So it's much more sustainable than it appears at first sight. But it's important that these, um, these funds will not uh, bur further burden the public debt and they will be uh, put to good use. The, they would probably finance the effort of the government to lower the tax wedge, which remains high and remains prohibitive for uh, more jobs uh, being created in the private sector or at least more jobs to be saved in the private sector during the crisis. It could lower the tax rates um, and create more incentives for, for in private investment. Um, a lot could be done with these funds uh, in order to uh, facilitate recovery for the Greek economy. So that, that's going to be an important development. Is there an argument to say that this was some nifty footwork by Merkel in the sense that uh, she very... Uh, diplomatically, if you like, killed off the discussion about the corona bond, which Greece was one of the nine countries, if I'm not mistaken, that had uh, advocated uh, common debt uh, issuance to uh, mitigate the economic impact of COVID-19. So she killed off that discussion without being as blunt about it as, say, for instance, the, the, the Dutch officials had been. Uh, but at the same time, did make a somewhat of a concession in the in that we're talking about uh, grants rather than loans now, but brought down perhaps the volume of uh, finance funds that will be available. You you mentioned sort of half a billion is significant, perhaps perhaps less than what a lot of economists might have uh, argued for. Yeah, I think this is not the optimal. This is not the kind of stimulus that the Eurozone economy, the European economy would need. I would have preferred something closer to 1.5 trillion, 
which is the estimate of the stimulus that uh, would be needed. Um, but this is this is sort of clearly this is a point of compromise uh, on the part of uh, of the German government. But it is a compromise that which I think is closer to the view of the Mediterranean uh, group and France than it is to those that were blocking any effort towards debt neutralization, common debt issue, uh, grants, and so forth. Um, so it is sort of consistent with uh, Chancellor Merkel's uh, habit of leading from the center, but it's a point of compromise which brings her closer to the uh, demands and the aspirations of the southern economies and, um, and represents a U-turn from what uh, traditionally has been the German government's policy against any sort of grants, against the transfers, and against any sort of debt neutralization and common debt issue. So I would not underestimate the importance of this, even though the magnitude, the financial volume that would be mobilized is uh, below what would be needed and certainly what would be desirable. George, do you think this move will be enough to prevent the north-south split that we were seeing emerge? And, and sometimes it's a bit of a cliche, but here it was clear that until now, the the reaction from countries like Spain, like uh, Italy, and to a lesser extent, Greece and Portugal was that uh, the EU wasn't doing enough in what was uh, a, a a crisis that was threatening everyone and didn't have its origins in one or two specific member states. Do you think that this will prevent that split uh, becoming uh, deeper, wider and more uh, cemented uh, within the Eurozone? Or is there a possibility that it will reverse in the sense that we will see a backlash now from uh, not perhaps northern uh, member states who are averse to the idea of uh, fiscal transfers. Well, I, it, the, 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 the split that you're referring to, I think, is a, a, a matter of the actual divergence of the economies within the euro and within the single market and, and the dynamics that are being built in the single market. Um, towards a further strengthening of companies of northern economies and wealthier economies at the expense of those of southern economies that do not have the deep pockets that um, governments such as those of Germany or the Netherlands or other northern economies have to support their companies. And of course, uh, the vulnerability that I mentioned in the beginning. So the split is actual. It is not just the, it's not just the conceptual, it's not a state of mind. Um, and this these grants will help um, do some of the of the bridging uh, that is needed uh, to shore up the economies of the south, but um, in this case, I think politically, I would say that um, the the countries that uh, uh, tend to be a minority here are those who are opposing uh, any sort of grants or any sort of neutralization under the scheme. Uh, the four countries that have. Um, Opposed the Fugal Four, two of them are not inside the Eurozone, um, are a minority. The nine governments that had supported the Corona Bond, which is a much more um, bold proposal towards neutralization than the current uh, German, Franco German uh, European Recovery Fund proposal, there were nine governments, and these were not only southern governments. They included uh, 
a government such as that of Ireland, for example, and other countries, some of which had been part of the older um, neo-Hanseatic League. So I think that the, the consensus today in the Eurozone and the European Union is that we have to do something uh, to exhibit, to demonstrate greater solidarity, not for humanistic reasons, but because of, a, of, of the kind of enlightened self-interest that should guide us in preserving the single currency and in defending the acquis of the single market, which risks to be uh, fundamentally disrupted as a result of the growing disparities and the persisting disparities inside the Eurozone and the vulnerability that could become self-feeding for the economies of the Eurozone South. So it's an important step. It's not what we would have liked, but it brings the North and the South closer. George, we saw many times during uh, the the debt crisis, which we lived so um, uh, such a sort of full extent here in Greece in the previous decade, we we reached stages where it truly felt like we were at a make or break moment, particularly from where we were sitting in uh, Greece. And yet we saw that the EU, the Eurozone, and even our own country found a way to muddle through in the end. Would you say that it's more of a case that Europe is finding uh, its feet slowly but steadily in this new uh, challenge the coronavirus uh, crisis, or is it more of a make-or-break moment again? Well, I think that the general maxim that uh, Europe integrates through crisis is is right, has worked in this case. So <clears throat> what we saw through the Eurozone crisis were uh, leaps of integration that we wouldn't have had under normal conditions. No intergovernmental conference would have produced um, the, the DSM or uh, the common responses uh, or the bailout programs, or I'm not saying that these were, were good, but they were necessary in order to prevent the worst. Uh, we had steps towards closer integration, <clears throat> the um, microeconomic imbalance procedure, a number of policies that brought the Eurozone countries together. <clears throat> we wouldn't have had them without this crisis. And the same thing is happening with the COVID-19 crisis, <clears throat> that it uh, kind of triggers a self-preservation instinct, which has always been very strong <clears throat> in the European Union. And uh, it is um, operating in order to avert the worst. Now, <clears throat> will that be sufficient? It's not going to be sufficient. And my major concern is the kind of vulnerabilities that it could leave behind, in the same way that the Eurozone crisis left behind the southern, <clears throat> southern economies that were left quite vulnerable as a result of prolonged uh, austerity. Um, we would not want this to happen again as a result of this crisis. Um, my, my fear is that muddling through uh, helps avoid the worst, but it does not constitute the optimal policy in terms of shoring up a kind of Eurozone and single market that would be with us for decades. We need bolder measures and we need to complete the economic union uh, within the monetary union along the lines that have been proposed by a number of institutions, including the European Commission, but also the European Council in the past. 
George, I think that's a great point to leave it on because it uh, leaves us uh, looking forward, which is uh, always the best uh, place to uh, conclude a discussion. And I'm, I'm sure there's there's plenty there that uh, we can come back to. And I think the situation, whether it's because of the, the coronavirus or whatever else may be further down the road, and as you mentioned, the imbalances that are likely to be exacerbated as a result of this crisis, despite the measures that have been taken by uh, the European Union and are yet to be taken in the months ahead, will uh, leave uh, Greece, where we're speaking from, and other countries um, looking for solutions. George, thank you very much for joining us. I know you've had lots of uh, speaking obligations in, in the past few days, so we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Nick. It's been a pleasure. So, we've come to the end of the third episode of the Agora podcast. Many thanks to John Springford and Christian Odendal, as well as George Pagulatos for their input. Thank you also to Phoebe Fronista, our producer. You may not have heard from her today, but she's been as busy as ever. Finally, thanks to you for listening. Please do subscribe to the podcast, which is available on ACAR, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also find out more about our work at www.macropolis.gr that's macropolis with a c as phoebe says and before i go a reminder about our theme tune because some of you have been asking about it it's a track called straight line blues by a greek group who are called the burgundy grapes there's a link to their Bandcamp page on our podcast site at acast but you can also find them on spotify and all these other sites and on that note i leave you with a burst of the song See you soon.